Check this out. Nothing, Arizona. This is a real place. Check out the, this is like the, this is what it says in their downtown. This is their thing. The staunch citizens of nothing are full of hope, faith, and belief in the work ethic. Through the years, these dedicated people had faith in nothing, hope for nothing, worked at nothing, for nothing. Now, my friend who sent me this, who went there, he took a few steps back and took another picture. Check this out. That's downtown nothing. And then I love this. You are here. Like, you are where? You're nowhere. But, and I don't know where, like, where do these people come up with a name like Nothing Arizona? It's like there's this place in Kentucky that's called Disappointment Kentucky. And if you've ever been to Kentucky, you know that pretty much anywhere in Kentucky is Disappointment Kentucky. Um, but then there's another place that, uh, if you go to Michigan, check this out, check this picture out. Um, there's actually a place called Hell, Michigan. And you might be thinking, I'll go there when hell freezes over. Well, check it out. It gets kind of cold in Michigan. Um, that's just kind of weird. Now, the thing is, is that they got, they got really into their name. Like, we got really into it. And so, you know, it's like, when you go to their downtown, there's like all these people dressed up like demons and Satan and all this stuff. In fact, they have a wedding chapel. Uh, check, this is their wedding chapel here. Because they know that a lot of people want to get married in hell. I've heard a lot of marriages from hell, but I didn't know people could get married in hell. Um, but nonetheless, you know, there, there's, there's all, all this stuff. And, and I'm just still trying to figure out, like, who, what, what group actually got together and said, what should we name this place? How about Hope? How about Great? How about Our Town? No, let's call it hell. You know, I mean, well, I mean, now, now mind you, the funny part is, look at the road you have to take to get there. Check this out. Um, actually, that's a joke. But that's a real, that's a real route. That's actually in New Jersey. And if you've ever been to New Jersey, you know why. Um, because I've been to New Jersey as, or as some have called it, the armpit of America. Um, I guess there's a lot of people from Jersey here. Well, even though if you are from Jersey, you'd agree because you've been there. Um, but no, this is, uh, this is what, then again, you, you know, you have a team called the Devils. You'd surprise you have a 666 road. Anyway, um, but here's the thing. Now, there's all this stuff about, like, hell, Michigan, and all this stuff. But have you ever thought about this? You ever thought about heaven and what heaven is like? You know, because I think that sometimes people just, there's, there's a lot of stuff that goes around about what hell is like. And there's, there's all kinds of pictures and, and ideas and imagery and all that. But have you ever thought about what hell is like or what it would be like to live there? I think if we were honest, now we would never say this openly because we would be under the impression that we'd get struck by lightning or something. But I think we might think that it's something like this town in Oregon. You see this picture. A city called Boring, Oregon. Now, we would never say that heaven is boring. But if I asked you, or if you asked me, most of us said, what is heaven like? This is what most of us would say. We would say that it's a bunch of, you know, chubby, just to be nice, a bunch of chubby angels that lay on clouds, playing harps, doing what? Nothing. Just strumming along. And then, well, you know, what else do they do? No, that's all they do. It's like this continuous, boring song that they play over and over. Apparently they eat because those chubby angels haven't gotten skinnier over the hundreds of years that we've been following them. And listen, there is a word for that. Boring. And like, nobody would really want to go there. Now, most people, when you ask them, even though that's the image that they have of heaven, say, do you want to go there? And the answer usually is yes, because honestly, what's the alternative? 
And so we say, well, yeah, I do want to go there, but I mean, I don't think it's going to be any fun. And, and, and the idea is this, is that the problem is, the problem is, is that most of the imagery, most of the pictures that we have in our minds about heaven have nothing to do with the Bible, but have everything to do with Renaissance era art. That's where you get like these little fat babies on harps playing strings, unless they're on the cover of a Van Halen album. Um, but other than that, I mean, we just, that's the only picture that we have uh, of heaven. But here's the thing. That's not how the Bible describes heaven at all. The Bible, if, it's, if it was going to use a word, it would not be boring to describe heaven. It's this exciting, amazing, mind-blowing place that, in fact, when people have had a glimpse of heaven, they can't even describe it. In fact, listen to what the Apostle Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. This is in the uh, message notes that we gave you. He says, I may as well bring up the matter of visions and revelations that God gave me. For instance, I know a man who 14 years ago was seized by Christ and swept into the ecstasy of the heights of heaven. Well, I don't know whether I, this took place in the body or out of it. Only God only knows. And I love this phrase. I only know that this man was hijacked into paradise. Again, whether in the body or out, I don't know. God knows. And there he heard the unspeakable spoken, but was forbidden to tell what he heard. Now, I want you to think about this, that the Apostle Paul goes to heaven, sees everything, and he says, listen, I want to tell you something, that I've been to heaven, I've seen what it's like, and I just, I can't talk about it. And like, you're going to leave us hanging like that? You, you, you kind of build us up as to what it's like. And he says, yeah, the thing is, the problem is this, that words can't do it justice. It was so incredible, so amazing, so mind-blowing, that words just can't even put, I can't even wrap my head around it, much less put words to describe what this place is like. It's kind of like what happened when a friend of mine told me about this place that had opened called Coldstone. He told me about this place where they have ice cream and they mix in all the goodies. And I said, so tell me, what's it like? And he said this, he said, you've just got to go there. And I went there. And I go there. A little too much. And then I went there and I loved it. And then I saw so a friend of mine, I told him about it. And he said, I told him that I had gone there. And he said, so what's it like? And I said, listen, you've just, you've just got to go there for yourself. And it, because it, words just can't put into, you just can't explain Coldstone. You've just got to taste at least one of the little spoons to know exactly what it is that's going on. And so that's exactly what I want us to do this morning. If it's all right with you, I want to take a trip to heaven so that we can see what this place is really like. Because my feeling is this, if we're going to, sp if you're a believer and you're going to spend all eternity there, you may as well know what it is that you're getting yourself into. So, if you have your Bible, I'm sure you do, open it with me to Revelation chapter 4. And we started a series a few, several weeks ago that we've been calling, it's the end of the world as we know it. And we've been studying, working our way verse by verse through the book of Revelation. Now we've been saying this before and, and I want to go back to it again for those of you that maybe are, are, are a little bit newer or just jumping into the game here. Now, uh, one of the things that I've been saying is that uh, Revelation is not a difficult book to understand. Because it's the only book in the Bible that comes to us with its own divine outline. And that outline is found in chapter 1 of Revelation in verse 19. Where Jesus tells John these things. He says that write the things that you've seen, the things that are, and the things that will take place after this. Now, that's the simple outline. 
The things that you've seen, the things that are, and what will take place after this. The things that you've seen, that's chapter 1. John sees the glorified, risen Jesus, and he gives us a description of what he sees. The things that are is Revelation chapters 2 and 3. The seven churches. And Jesus writes seven letters to seven churches. But then he says, what will take place after this? Or uh, in the original language, what will take place after these things? And the Greek word for that is the word metatauta. Now, that's an important phrase because when we get to chapter 4, verse 1, the very first words, it says, after these things. So we know that now we're entering that next division. Chapter 1, the things that you've seen. Chapters 2 and 3, the things that are. But then chapter 4 is that third division, the things that will take place after these things. After what things? The things involving the church. Once the church seen, once God is, the church age is over, there's this event that's called the rapture of the church where Jesus comes, takes the church out. So if you've ever seen those bumper stickers that say, in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. It's going to be the case. God's going to take the church out. And the question is, Why? God takes the church out because he wants to deal with the earth and people that have totally rejected God is going to deal with them specifically. But see, and the important thing to note is this, is that 19 times in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Revelation, the word church is used. From chapters 4 through 21, the word church is not used even once. The church is strangely absent. And it's not mentioned again until chapter 2 when it says the the. the the spirit and the, bride, the church say, come on, let's go, let's, let, let's do this. Get, let's get right with God. Let's, let's, let's do this. So it's not even mentioned, it's strangely absent. But in chapters 4 and 5, we get this picture of heaven. In chapters 6 through 18, we get this picture of the great tribulation. And then in chapter 19, Jesus comes back. And the Bible says this, with all the believers with him on white horses. That's you and me. And you say, I don't know how to ride a horse. I can promise you this. You will learn to ride a horse because we're all coming back with him. And then here's what takes place. Chapter 20 is this period of time where Jesus is ruling and reigning on the earth. A time for a thousand years. It's called the millennium. And then in chapters 21 and 22, there's a new heaven and a new earth. And we all live happily ever after. Say, all right, I'm done. Let's go home. Now, uh, before, you, before you leave, um, what we're going to do today is that we're going to take this look at heaven and what heaven is really like. You see, there's over 500 references to heaven in the Bible, but Revelation 4 and 5 are the most specific and most detailed accounts of heaven that we get. And that it's not a picture of these, these little chubby angels that need to go on a diet playing, knocking on heaven's door on their harps. Instead, it's this picture of this amazing place that we're going to spend eternity discovering, exploring, and getting to know. So let's begin in chapter 4 of Revelation, starting in verse 1. He says, After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard, was like a trumpet, speaking to me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things that must take place after this. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardis stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Now if you pause there and give me your attention, I want us to note three things that we're going to see, that we're going to experience in heaven. And the first is this, is that in heaven we see things clearly. In heaven we're going to see things clearly, unlike now when we don't. A couple of years ago, I got this weird little, like, infection in my eye. 
And man, I just couldn't really even see. Everything was blurry in, in one eye. And I had to go to the eye doctor. eye doctor gave me some drops and it made everything better. But for a couple of days, I couldn't see it. And so what I did was I told my wife, because um, I had to keep my eye closed for part of the time, which you can only imagine if I'm talking to you and I'm like this the whole time. So I said to my wife, I said, when you go out, can you buy me an eye patch? Preferably one that has like a skull and crossbones like a pirate. And she said, absolutely not. I will not be married to a pirate. And I said, uh, well, it's only for like a week. You know, maybe you'll like being married to a pirate. I can wear the eye patch all the time. And uh, she said, well, absolutely not. And so uh, I was still doing my pirate voice. You know, I was ask, asking her, do you know what a, what, the, what a pirate's favorite letter in the alphabet is? And she said, what? And I said, arr. Anyway, so I had all these little dumb jokes. She found none of them humorous. Um, and so, but I'm telling you, it was after that that, you know, the eye drops came in. I started seeing clearly. Now, I want you to understand that heaven is much the same way. Right now, we don't see things clearly. Right now, we only get half of the picture as to what's really taking place. In fact, in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, the Bible tells us this, explaining that. It says, now we see things imperfectly, as in a cloudy mirror. But then we see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely, just as now, just as God knows me completely. So John gets to heaven, and the first thing that he notices is this throne. Now, that's not surprising. I remember when I went to the White House uh, when, uh, when I was a kid. I say I went to the White House. sounds like I was invited there. Um, I went to the White House, and I was there with like 10,000 other people on a tour. And so they let us in. I was, I was about 13. My dad and I went. It was an awesome time. But one of the first things that you notice when you walk in, like the thing everybody wants to see is the Oval Office because that's like where the power is. And so that, that's, that's the big thing. And so, um, and I remember seeing, you know, we saw the Oval Office. It was amazing. This is like when Bush Sr. was president. Yes, that makes me very old. Um, and so, I said, man, I was barely alive when Bush W. was president. Anyway, just don't even tell me that. But here's the thing that happens. that You go there and you're like, man, that's, that's the seat. That's, that's, where, that's where the power is. That's where the decisions are made. John goes to heaven, he sees the throne, and he thinks, man, that's where the power is. That's where... Think about this. Every major decision in the universe has been made there. In fact, we think about it even further. The very universe was flung into existence by a word that God spoke when he created the heavens and the earth. And so John, seeing this, he says, how am I going to describe this? I mean, this is like indescribable. But how do I describe this? And he says, here's how I'm going to describe it. I'm going to describe it with... Two stones. Now, why would he describe it with two stones? This jasper stone and the sardius stone. Now, the reason is, is because, now, I, I, if you've been around, I've told you this a couple times. If not, let me just say it again. Is that one of the things that I contend is that in the book of Revelation, there's nothing new. That, in fact, everything in Revelation has been revealed to us in the Old Testament. Because John, when he, the writer, is writing with an understanding and with uh, an assumption that we are, you know, basically Old Testament scholars that understand what's going on. And so he speaks to us as though we have a background in the Hebrew Scriptures, which his original readers would have. Those of us now 20 centuries removed don't. And so we've got to continuously go back and, and, and get the understanding so we can understand what's being said. So why would he describe these two stones? Now, let me show you this picture here. This picture here is of the high priest. The high priest was the most important person in Israel, essentially. Um, this was the uh, religious leader of the Jewish people. And he had this breastplate, you'll see it right here, that has 12 stones on it. Now, these 12 stones, 
And you say, man, that kind of looks like Darth Vader's thing a little bit. It's not. Um, that's not a breathing apparatus or anything. But uh, anyway, I'm, I digress. Um, there's a quote there, and it, I'm just not letting it come out. Um, I find your lack of faith disturbing. Anyway, um, so what happens is, uh, it, is that these, these 12 stones each represent one of the 12 tribes of Israel. So he says, I see a jasper stone, I see a sardius stone. What do they represent? The jasper stone was the very last of the 12. The, the uh, sardius stone was the first of the 12. So what is he saying? I went and I saw this throne and I see the jasper and the sardius stone. Immediately in the Jewish mind, he would say, I see the first and the last. That's what Jesus says in Revelation 1, 17. He says, that John sees him, he says, I fell at his feet as dead. And he says, hey, don't be afraid because I am the first and the last. It represents this clear stone, the, the, the jasper stone. Why? Because it represents, speaks of purity that the Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 1 that this is the message that we say unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. The sardius stone was a red stone. It spoke of blood. It spoke of redemption. It spoke of sacrifice. Speaking to us, who is sitting on the throne, the first and the last, that Jesus himself is the one that's sitting on the throne. He told us this in Revelation 3, when he would say, that to him who overcomes, I will give him to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat with my father on his throne. But then he sees another thing. He sees these two stones coming from the throne, kind of emanating from the throne. But he says, and I noticed something around the throne. I noticed this rainbow. But it wasn't like a rainbow like you and I see. Because we see like half of a rainbow, right? You have Skittles, you can taste the rainbow. But he sees a little bit, he sees something a little bit different. He sees an entire rainbow, a circular rainbow that goes all the way around the throne. Now once again, the rainbow, as you may or may not know, is a picture, it's a promise that was given to Noah after the flood, the waters of the flood covered the earth. And this is what God said in Genesis chapter 9 after all of this had gone down. He says, whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between you and me and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy the earth. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. And here's the important thing to note for you and for me. Is that we don't see things clearly on the earth because when we see the rainbow, we only see half of it. God, from his perspective, from the throne, sees a rainbow that is completely circular. He sees the whole picture with complete understanding. You see, it's a reminder to us, even though when we see the rainbow, we remember God's promise, but we also remember that we don't have the complete picture. That sometimes there's promises that God has made to us, there's prayers that we've requested, prayers that we've made, things that we've asked of God that God has promised to us, and yet sometimes the fulfillment waits. And we say, well, God, have you forgotten? And the rainbow reminds us, no, 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 I haven't forgotten, I remember. But the, the, the rainbow also reminds us that not only do I remember, God would say, but also you don't see the whole picture clearly. So the thing that you want, that you think is the fulfillment to the promise, listen, if you had total understanding, you'd know that it's just not the case. The thing that you see, that you say, God, this is it. 
You see, but the promise, you know, that for that job, for that career, for that home, for the husband, for the wife, for the kids, whatever the promise might be, and we look at it and we say, God, this is the promise. You say, whoa, 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 whoa. You see, you don't have the whole picture right now. And sometimes we see the whole, half the picture and we say, God, certainly this can't be it. This can't be what it, what it is that you're calling me to. And here's what God would say. Oh, but if you only saw the whole rainbow, if you only saw the whole picture, you'd know that it actually is. You see, the rainbow was there because it's like God's post-it note. You put post-it notes up in your house, don't forget this, don't forget that. And here's the thing that God would say, I've got the rainbow there. It's my post-it note to know that I'm never going to forget. I'm always going to remember the promise that I've made. That's the first thing John sees, but it gets better. Here's what he sees next. We're going to move to verse 4. He says, Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which were the seven spirits of God. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention. In heaven we see things clearly, but you know what else we see in heaven? We see rewards given. Let me explain what I mean by that. The one and only football game I've ever attended in my life was the 1992 playoff game between the Dolphins and the Chargers. That was a great game. The Dolphins won 31 to nothing. It was, it was a great game. And, uh, and it's not because I don't say, well, you haven't gone back. It's been a while. You know, the Dolphins want you back. Now, here's the thing. It's not that I dislike football. I love football. I'm just under the impression that I, I have a better seat from my house watching it in HD than I do at the stadium when I'm like eight miles away from where the action is. Somebody, something happens, and then I have to ask somebody, hey, what happened? I, I couldn't see that, you know. Oh, I saw one guy, I saw, I saw this big pileup, but I didn't, I didn't know what happened. Oh, they got that inch for the, uh, the first down. Well, I wouldn't have known. I'm a quarter of a mile away. Um, so anyway, so that's why I don't. But here's the thing. The one time that I did go, I pulled into Joe Robbie Stadium. I know it's not called that now because they have, they change it like every other week. But we will go with the original name, Joe Robbie Stadium. Um, and I pulled up into Joe Robbie Stadium and we parked our car. It was with a couple of friends of mine. And it was, you know, it was kind of, over, I'll give it that it was overcast. And so the clouds were dark and it was threatening to rain. And outside they were selling ponchos for four bucks. Now, let me just tell you something that you might say, wow, that's a good deal for a poncho. Now, in 1992, and I'm dating myself now, that was a complete ripoff. The idea of spending four bucks on a poncho, I mean, anybody who did it was just labeled a dummy, you know, for doing it. And in fact, my friends that were with me, they said, should we get one? And I'm like, what are you, out of your mind? You're going to pay four bucks? I mean, you can almost buy a soda with that much money, you know, inside, you know, because now it's like $75 for a soda, but back then it was only like 18 and so I'm thinking, you know, you're going to buy a poncho. And they're like, yeah, but it looks like it's going to rain. And I'm like, listen, you want to buy a poncho, that's fine. But I'm calling it open season. I'm going to make fun of you the entire time that, you're, that we're at this game. So because of my encouragement, they decided not to buy the poncho. We go in. And it rained for the entire first half of that football game. Now, that could be why it's been almost 18 years since I haven't gone to a football game. But here's the thing. You know how you can get, like, hey, it rained and I got wet. There's like, hey, you got wet, and then there's like, my underwear is soaked, kind of wet. All right? Let's just say it was the second kind of soaked that I got. 
And then, like, we're totally drenched. And then one of my friends says, hey, maybe we should get a poncho. And I'm like, for what? You're already, nothing else can get wet. I mean, you're a human prune right now. What does it matter to get a poncho at this point? Besides, if I don't sell them inside. Just buy a soda with the money that you saved. At least now your insides will be wet as much as the outsides are. And so, anyway, the idea is this, and this is the thing that was, that was so important, is that I had an opportunity to influence what happened inside when I was outside. But I didn't take the opportunity, and when I was inside, I totally regretted it. Hold that thought. In heaven, John sees 24 elders. Who are these guys? The 24 elders, you say, well, who are these people? All you have to do is watch them. Watch what they do, watch what they're wearing, watch their activity, and you can find out exactly who they are. You see, we see that they sit on thrones. Well, we already talked about that. In Revelation 3.21, Jesus says to the person who overcomes, when he writes to the churches, he says, I will let him sit on my throne even as I overcame and sat on my father's throne. It says that they wear white robes. Well, we, already, we, we learned about that in Revelation chapter 3 as well. Jesus says that whoever overcomes will be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He says to the church, you can sit on the throne, to the church, you can wear a white garment, but these guys have crowns on their head, but Jesus also spoke that to the church too. He says in Revelation 2.10, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Who are these 24 elders? Listen, the 24 elders are the representation of the entire church standing before God, worshiping before his throne. And here's the thing. The crown that they have on their head are the reward for what they did on planet Earth. The rewards that they have are the crowns. The crowns are what they did that now when they step from this life to the next, they experience the rewards. It's what happened at the football game that what I had the opportunity when I was outside to influence what happened on the inside. And I didn't take that opportunity. These elders, you know what they did? They used the time that they had and they recognized that, you know, you can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead. That I could actually use my time and my talents and my treasure and I can use that to impact what happens to me in eternity. Now what do I mean by that? Let me read to you this passage from the book of 1 Corinthians. I think it will explain it a little bit better. It says, No one can lay any foundation other than the one we already have, Jesus Christ. Anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials. Gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, or straw. But on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, the builder will receive a reward. If the work is burned up, the builder will suffer loss. The builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping a wall of flames. Now here's what happens. The Bible tells us this in, uh, in, in this passage, in, in Romans chapter 12 and a couple of others, that there's going to be a point in time when, as Christians, when, that we step from this life to the next. And that actually we're going to stand before God. And not stand before God to see if we kind of get into heaven or not. That was already taken care of when he put our, we put our faith in Jesus. But here's what happens. That we're going to stand before God and get the rewards for what were done on planet earth. And those rewards will determine our ability to enjoy eternity. And that's why he says, here's what takes place. There's the gold, the silver, the, 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 the precious stones, the wood, hay, or stubble. 
that it's almost like, if I can use the illustration, that we're going to stand before God and all of our works, all the things that we've done for God in this life, are going to go through the conveyor belt. And they're going to pass through this, this refining fire. And even like gold or silver, you know this if you've worked with metals, that even gold or silver, you put them in the fire and you know what it does? It removes all of the imperfections and it makes the gold even and the silver even more valuable. But you can imagine what happens if you take wood, hay, or stubble and it passes through the fire. Boom! It gets burnt up. And what God does is that He passes all this stuff through the fire. And the things that we did with a proper motive for God are the things that we get rewarded for. And the things that we did with an improper motive or for the wrong reason get kind of burnt up. And you can imagine, I think that we're going to be surprised on that day. I think that we're going to stand before God and we're going to see some stuff coming down the conveyor belt. Maybe you were here last week, no AC, right? I mean, it was H-O-T in here, right? Um, it, was, it was hot in this place and now, now it's like, it's, it's awesome, it's, it's nice and cool. But you can imagine, you know, you imagine a guy who got here at like 6 in the morning to set up. It was hot, it was sticky, it was nasty, you know. Um, and then... And then he sees that, that little jewel coming down the pike. And he says, oh, I'm going to get a big reward for that one. I even put up with that sermon that he gave. I didn't even fall asleep. I'm going to get a big, uh, a big reward for that. And then, boom, it gets burnt up. And you're like, oh, God, what happened? Why did it get burnt up? I got there early. I put up with the whole message. I stayed to the end. And he says, yeah, God says, yeah, but the only reason you got there early because you were trying to get a girl's phone number, so it wasn't really for me. So it got burnt up. But then there's other stuff. There's going to be stuff that we don't even remember. Like, God, you're rewarding me for what? I don't even remember doing that. That time that I encouraged that person. That time that there was somebody who was really bummed out and I prayed for them. That person who was going through a tough time and I went out of my way to show God's love for them. I don't even remember that happening. And God says, yeah, but don't you remember the rainbow? See, you don't remember. But see, I'm never going to forget what it is that took place. And see, that's the very thing that's happening with these 24 elders. They're there, and they're experiencing the reward of serving God here on planet Earth. Now, here's what some people say. Some people say, yeah, but see, I'm not into crowns. I'd just be happy, if I'm, if I'm a, as a Christian, I'd just be happy being there. I mean, seriously, if I could just I'm be in heaven, that to me would be great. But I'm not into crowns, it doesn't matter. You see, we're not into crowns. Now, but then we'll be real serious and real interested in crowns. It's kind of like this, because every person that goes to heaven is going to enjoy heaven. It's not like anybody's going to be like, man, I'm bummed out. This, I mean, it could have been good if I had upgraded, you know, but I'm like flying, I'm like flying coach in heaven. You know, it's not going to be like that. But here's what I also know is that according to the scriptures that our ability to enjoy heaven will be determined by the, the kind of service and the kind of life that we live to, to, to honor and serve God. It's kind of like this. Imagine if I had this big pitcher of lemonade and everybody gets this opportunity to have some lemonade. And some people get like a glass size. And some people get like a mug size. Some people get a Dixie cup size. There's some people that have got like a shot glass size of lemonade. And then there's some people that have got like a 50-gallon drum of lemonade, and you're thinking, man, everybody's getting lemonade. Everybody has the capacity to store some. But see, some people have greater capacity than others. And how does it happen? Because of what happens here on earth, 
that we decide that we're going to live for God, that we're going to serve God, that now it affects what happens in eternity. It's like that line in the movie Gladiator where it says that what we do in life echoes in eternity. Listen, it's, it's really true. That's why every time that we serve, every time that we give, every time that we talk to someone about what God is doing in our lives, we're storing up treasures in heaven for what's going to happen for all of eternity. And if you're here and you're saying, man, I want to start storing up treasures, then listen, get involved, start doing something for God. Say, man, I have gifts, I have talents, and I, and I want to honor God with them. Then listen, then just go for it and do it. You say, man, how can I help out here? Listen, right after this service, there's going to be an orientation for those who want to start volunteering. Right outside, you're going to see a sign. You go right upstairs, and you can do that. But listen, the key is this, is that we recognize that right now, it's like we're outside of the stadium. And that there's going to be, we have an opportunity now to influence what happens when we walk in. And that's why it's in heaven we see things clearly. In heaven we see rewards given. But in heaven we see one other thing. Look at verse 6. This is... This is going to be wild. You're going to love this. Check this out. Before the throne, there was like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures, full of eyes in front and in back. Like something out of like Monsters, Inc., these guys. And check out what he says. He says, the first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like a calf. The third living creature had the face of, of like a man. The fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. And these four living creatures, having six wings, full of eyes around and within, they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You're worthy, O Lord, to receive glory, honor, and power, for You created all things, and by Your will they exist and were created. Now if you pause there and give me your attention. In heaven we see things clearly. In heaven we see rewards given. And then in heaven, number three, we see worship modeled. We see worship models. We see what worship really is. You see, we have this idea thinking that worship is just singing. In fact, we think that worship is just like the 20 minutes before the teaching. It's like, that's the opening act. And then this is like the main act. And then, no, listen, there's only one, one part. That all of it is worship. In fact, you actually come to church worshiping. You leave church worshiping. That if you're a believer, this is what worship is. God describes worship as a life that's lived to the glory of God. That that's what worship really is. And so how do they worship in heaven? They worship with singing, but they also worship with service. That they take their crowns that are symbolic of the rewards that they receive, and they throw them at the feet of Jesus. Now, I know, you're, I know what you're thinking. You're like, Bob, that sounds great. Tell me a little bit more about these crazy looking creatures. Because... What is up with those guys? Four different faces, eyes on the outside, eyes on the inside. You can imagine, he says, hey, I see you. You see everybody. you got eyes on the inside and on the outside. You know, um, and, and so who are these guys? Simply put, they're angels. Uh, in the book of Ezekiel chapter 10, we get a picture of these guys, and, and they're angels. They're, uh, the Bible calls them seraphim, and that is that they're, they're angels that, that worship God. Now, but I want to show you something else that I think is just like totally mind-blowing and has so much relevance to you and I today. 
for those of you that are Bible students, you're thinkers, you love this kind of stuff, we're going to take, we're going to like peel the onion a little bit and like take it a little bit deeper if we can. So uh, check this out. In the book of Numbers, chapter 2, there is, um, the children of Israel have left Egypt. Remember, they were slaves in Egypt. They went, they came out of Egypt, the Red Sea. You saw the movie. You kind of know where I'm going. So they're in the wilderness and they're marching toward the land of promise. But there was this place that God had told Moses to construct, this, this worship center, this, this portable type of church that was called the tabernacle. The tabernacle was this church, basically, where they could set it up, tear it down, much like what we do here. They would set it up, they'd tear it down every time that they were going to move. Um, they would tear it down, they'd move it, then God would say, stop here, and then they would set it back up and they'd have this place to worship. So check out this diagram for a second. You've got the tabernacle in the wilderness, right? But here's what happens. God doesn't want the people just like randomly walking, right? Because that would be total chaos. And we learn that God is a God of order. So what God does is he says, all right, there's 12 tribes. We've learned that, right? But here's what I need to do. I need to divide these 12 tribes into four groups of three. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to take four and put them here. Four, uh, I'm sorry, don't do that. Don't go back. Don't do that. I'm going to take three and put them here. I'm going to take three and put them here. I'm going to take three and put them here and three and put them here. And the tabernacle will be in the center. But there's another thing. The other thing is this, is that there is one tribe that's going to be bigger than, than the others. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the four biggest tribes and put those at each corner. And then two of the smaller ones will, will be there as well. So check out the first one. Now you can change the slide. So you have these three. And this is the number that number, Numbers chapter 2 gives us. It's the tribe of Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. These are three of the 12 tribes, totaling 186,400. But of those three, Judah is the biggest. So that means when they're going to put up their flag, their banner, because all 12 tribes had a particular banner that, just, that said, hey, this is us, whoever had the biggest banner, got to, whoever was the, the biggest tribe, got to put up their banner. Now, hold that thought, because we're going to get back to that. So now... That was to the east. Now to the south, we had three other tribes. We, next slide. We had the tribe of Reuben, Simeon, and Issachar, totaling 151,450. To the west, we had the tribe of Ephraim. Now we can go to the next slide. We had the tribe of Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin, totaling 108,100. Then we had, uh, to the north, we had the last tribe, the next slide, which is the tribe of Dan, Asher, and Naphtali. Now, you're looking at this and you're like, wow, this looks like a symbol I've seen before. I want you to think about this. God sets up the children of Israel to march through the wilderness, in, marching in the picture of a cross. Now, that's not even the kung fu part yet that I haven't even gotten to. The whoa, that's the part you're going to, I'm going to get to that in a second. But remember, remember the part that I said before, that of these 12 tribes, right, there's three on each side, the one that was the biggest, they got to put their banner up. They say, what in the world does this have to do with Revelation chapter 4 and these crazy creatures that we see in heaven? Now, next slide. Here's what we see. Each of the banners represents an eagle, a lion, a man's face, and a calf. Why? Hebrews chapter 8, this is what it says. They serve at a sanctuary, that is the tabernacle, that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. 
That is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. You say, Bob, that's great. What does this mean to me? I'm going to walk out of here. How do I use this? I can't take this diagram with me. What, do I, how do, what does it mean? Here's what it means. In verse 11, they sing this song. Every time that the, the seraphim, these, these crazy angels, that they, you know, these, they've got the four faces, they've got the eyes in and out, they say, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And when they start worshiping, you know what happens? That the, 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 the 24 elders, the church, they get into it too. They take their crowns, they cast it before the feet of God, and they say this, they sing the song in verse 11. They say, you're worthy, O Lord, to receive glory, honor, and power because you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. But I want to give you this in a literal translation, because this is read, read, we're reading this from the New King James, but I want to go old school. Old King James. Like the thee and thou, King James, because that actually translates it a little bit better. And it's in your notes. It says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory, honor, and power. For Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they exist and were created. You see the the slight difference? It says, For Your will, by Your will they exist and were created. In the New King James, in in, in the old school, it says that for Thy pleasure they are and were created. Do you know why that is and why that's so important? It's because so many people are miserable in life. Because they're under the impression that God exists for us. That God exists for our pleasure. In fact, that's why when things don't go our way, the first one that we blame is God. You see, we'll make terrible decisions... And then, like, when the culmination of those decisions come on us, we'll say, I can't believe God is doing this to me. Now, think about what happens. And that's why we find ourselves so many times really unhappy with what's happening and the culmination of what's happened in our lives. You say, man, this isn't what I was supposed to be. I really want to be happy. And I'm unhappy, and I don't understand why God's not allowing me to be happy. And the problem lies with what was happening in that diagram. You see, remember what I told you is that worship is a life that's lived to the glory of God. And that diagram, you know where the tabernacle was? The very presence of God was right in the center. There's something that happens when I put God in the center and I take myself out of the center. You see, all of us, this is how we start out life. Before knowing Christ, before knowing anything about the things of God. We believe this. We believe that life is a movie where we are the star. Now think about this. Your whole life, my whole life, you've woken up and you're always on your mind. Right? You're looking in the mirror, you don't see anybody else. Why? Because you're the star of the show. And everybody else in the movie. Like, right now, you think that there's a movie going on that's about you. And all of us are just character actors in your movie. Like, I'm making a guest appearance in your movie. Right? I'm I'm just getting like this, this, co-starring. This crazy guy, you know, who just shows up on Sunday. And then, but here's the thing. The person next to you, they think the movie's actually about them. And that you're a guest star on their movie. Now, here's the weirdest part. I think the movie's about me and that you're a guest star in my movie. And you say, well, who's right? None of us are right. Because the movie is about God. It's about a story that God is telling. And all of us are character actors 
in His movie. And that's, listen, if we can grab hold of that, our lives will radically change because we will realize that the point of the universe is not about us. That's not about me getting everything that I want, everything I desire, everything that I think I need because I know best. No, instead, it's what verse 11 says. That you're worthy, O Lord, to receive glory, honor, and power because for your pleasure they exist and were created. When you realize that you were, you were created for God's pleasure, why did God create you, create me? Because He could and because He felt like it. You say, well, that doesn't sound nice. It may not sound nice, but it's true. And the sooner that we start living in that reality, the happier we're going to be. You say, no, 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 but happiness is when I just go after it and I get it and I'm seeking it and I'm, and I'm unhappy now, but I'm going to find it. Listen, can I just save you some, some trouble? Look, here's the thing. Here's the trouble. When we actually seek happiness, we never find it. Because happiness is not something that's ever to be sought. Happiness is the byproduct of something else. You see, the thing that's amazing to me, you say, I want to live a life that's rewarding. The 24 elders are wearing these crowns, the very symbol of all the rewards you could possibly imagine. They're living a rewarding life. And you know what it, 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 it entails? It entails God being in the center and them recognizing and reminding themselves, you're worthy, O Lord, to receive glory, honor, and power for you created all things. And for your pleasure they exist and were created. The more that we believe that life is about us, the more we're going to be frustrated. When I grab hold, when you grab hold, when we grab hold of the reality that life is not about you, it's not about me, it's not my movie or your movie, it's God's story that He's been telling on the pages of eternity. And that now we are the character actors, that we're the guest stars in His movie. You know what we find? Fulfillment, peace, happiness, and joy, and purpose. The very things that we've been seeking when we were trying to make everything about us and we couldn't find are the things that we enjoy and realize and grab hold of and experience when we realize that He was the one that was supposed to be in the center all along. Every frustration, every problem that we experience has always been a struggle between who is going to sit on the throne. Is it going to be my will and what I want? And I'm going to sit on the throne and try to dictate what happens in the world and in the universe because it's my story? Or will I relinquish control and walk away and step away from the throne? Take this opportunity to have a rewarding life when I put God rightfully on the throne, which is where He's supposed to be. Put Him in the center. And that's when I find the fulfillment, the peace, the purpose, and the meaning that I was created to have that you were created to have. But it begins by the recognition of something. But he says, you are worthy, Lord, to receive glory, honor, and power because you created all things and for your pleasure they exist and were created. Let's pray together. And God, we thank you so much for that reality and we know that sometimes it's difficult for us to really grab hold of that, to understand that, to live that. But Lord, the prayer of our heart is that we would grab hold of it, that we would live it, that God, it's for your pleasure that we exist and we were created, and that the rewarding life that we can have 
comes from understanding that, grabbing hold of that. And when we do, we experience the meaning, the purpose, the peace, the fulfillment that comes from having you in the center. In Jesus' name, amen.